You are listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. I'm one of your hosts, Emily Calkins. In this special feed drop, we're sharing a recording of an event we did with Matteo Escarapor, author of Black Buck. Enjoy! Matteo Escarapor is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Black Buck, which is a story about a young man who becomes the star salesman and the only Black employee in a New York City startup. Booklist called Black Buck Extraordinary, and Publishers Weekly said it was winning and layered. Matteo's work aims to empower people of color to seize opportunities for advancement, no matter the obstacles they face. He was a 2018 Rhode Island Writers Colony writer in residence, and his writing has appeared in Entrepreneur and Lit Hub, Catapult, The Rumpus, and elsewhere. And he is joining us from Brooklyn. Uh, Marcus Harrison Green, who's our moderator tonight, is the founder and publisher of the South Seattle Emerald. He grew up in Seattle, where he experienced firsthand the impact of one-dimensional stories on marginalized communities. After a stint working in the investment world, Marcus returned to Seattle with a newfound purpose of telling stories in the hope of advancing social change. He was one of Seattle Magazine's most influential people in 2016, and he was recently awarded the Individual Human Rights Leader Award from the Seattle Human Rights Commission. And his essay collection, Readying to Rise, will be published in September. So thanks so much to both of you for being with us tonight. And I will turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Emily. Mateo, uh, thank you, one, for being here all the, all the way live from Brooklyn, uh, one of my favorite places oh, yeah. on earth. Well, I got to say, I you know, before we get into the question, uh, I got to clear the air. Ooh. After I got done with finishing this book, I was like, damn, this man, because this is the book that I wish I would have written. It's, it's the wits, oh, the flair, the verve, the poetry in, in your writing. You know, I can't deny it. This is really one of the best books that I have read in, in the past 10 years. And yeah. so seriously, thank you for writing it. Thank you for reading. <laughs> it really it really means a lot. Whenever anyone takes the time to read this book, it means a lot when they enjoy it, but especially the people I had in mind while writing it. So thank you for reading. I mean, I know it's, it's usually boilerplate to ask, you know, why did you write this? But I, the question I want to ask is, is why did this book absolutely need to exist? And, and why did you need to write it? To the first point, why did it need to exist? That's, that's hard to answer. The person who reads it and has it uh, reflecting their lives back to them and, and feeling empowered or seen because they read it, I think that they could answer more so. But it was important for me to write it because... This was a story that uh, was waiting to come out of me. It it was born out of necessity. I had written two manuscripts beforehand that didn't go anywhere. They were about different uh, topics, somewhat related, but very different plots, very different types of books. And I was at Creative Rock Bottom. I said, what am I doing? Am I actually going to do this? Am I actually going to be a writer? You know, I was some guy coming from the world of startups and sales. It was at that point that I said, I'm going to, I'm going to do it, you know, regardless of what it takes, but I'm no longer going to try to just get an agent or get a book deal. I'm rather going to try to write the book for the people I wanted to resonate with in the way that I want. So, right. You're talking about verb, you're talking about poetry, you're talking about some wild stuff going on in this book. (laughs) I, I allowed, I gave myself permission to run free on the page, knowing that the right people who read it at the right time 
will have these words resonating with them. And other people might read it and say, yeah, that was good. I liked it. Or other people might read it and say, oh, I don't really get it. But, <laughs> but none of that really mattered to me. I was just thinking about the type of person who I wanted to read this book. And the type of person was, first off, Black people who have been the only one or one of the few in these types of environments. Mm-hmm. And then anyone who has been the only one or one of the few. And I've had many people reach out to me and say, I've been the only woman you know, in this type of environment or on an executive team, I've been the only type of person with this specific sexual orientation or, you know, follower of this religion. And I know what it's like to be made to feel less than because I'm different. So that was the purpose of this book. And if if I could answer directly, I think that's why it needed to exist to address Mm. these topics in a way that hasn't been addressed in this way before, especially focusing on this type of character. The last thing I'll say is, there's been many people who have reached out to me, especially younger black men who say, I was waiting for a book like this to focus mm. on a younger black man, someone that they can relate to. So uh, that's just been a joy to hear as well. This book skewers a lot of corporate culture and sort of the performative diversity efforts and performative mm-hmm. in- in- inclusion. You know, back when I was in the investment world, that that definitely was something I experienced. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie, but the first couple chapters, I was like, man, this is, uh, oh, this is, this is, this is a little too traumatic. This is on yeah. PTSD. Yeah. He, he is experiencing this, this full corporate, onslaught of, of tr- attempting to transform him and, and change him into something that is uh, palatable, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, for the taste of, of, of white folks, essentially. <laughs> how autobiographical, how, how I, and so I'll say this, how emotionally autobiographical Ooh. was this? The first thing that you, that you mentioned, right, of how you were reading the book and it was giving you PTSD, right? I've had people, I've had uh, black people specifically at events or in in emails or DMs tell me that the book triggered them and that it was necessary, but that it was difficult, very difficult for them to read because they had had these experiences, right? And it's not the same experience of like someone pouring a bucket of white paint on you, right? But things that can feel that way, even if on the surface, they are seemingly mundane or innocuous. So you bringing that up, I just want to put it out there that there have been many people who say that the the book triggered them in that way, but that it also helped them because they realized that they are not the only ones. I think that whenever we're going through anything in life, especially if it's very intense or traumatic, we can feel like we're the only ones experiencing it. And that's why sometimes we go to Google. That's why we want to talk to other people to, to know that it's not just us. There's something comforting about that. In terms of what happens in the workplace. When I was working in the world of startups, I did work in the world of startups for years. Uh, When I was 24, I was leading a team of of 30 people who were cold calling and calling inbound leads. I was a top dog. And while of course there were microaggressions or just passive forms of racism, I didn't experience nearly what Darren then Buck did. For me, I experienced very visceral and bizarre forms of racism growing up where I did. And um, I I took those experiences and I translated them into the workplace to show to my readers, I know what it can feel like. This is, this is, this is in some ways very real and authentic. And then in some ways hyperbolic, but regardless of where you placed on the spectrum of real or absurd, I know that it'll feel true for people who have had these experiences because if, if you are one of the few in any environment, and then you have a bunch of other people trying to gaslight you and say, chill out, 
We're just making a joke. It can feel like someone's pouring a, a bucket of white paint or someone's asking whether they should translate instructions into Ebonics. Yeah, and, and I'll say, I mean, I, I think you you handle that so, so definitely in, in your writing. As somebody, both of us who have been there in terms of having to navigate internal power structures, you know, what were you really trying to say in, in, in this book about our self-sacrifice mm. in, in order to just survive? The responses to the book, especially from Black people, at least specifically about Darren and, and what he experiences. People are talking to me this way. I would have killed someone. And then there's other people. They say, I know what it's like to just take it until you make it. I know what it's like to be silent when your your gut is telling you that something that's happening is wrong, but you don't want to speak up because you don't want to be fired. You don't want to be labeled as the angry black woman or the wild black man or a brown person or whatever. Um, you, you don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. What I'm saying in terms of Darren's journey isn't that you have to do what Darren did. There are things that myself as the author are saying, and my personal beliefs are in there. But then there are just questions that I'm posing in the form of the plot itself and what takes place. So I put the burden on the reader to ask themselves, what I want to take until we make in order to get to the top. And then once we get to the top, help other people. You do what is in line with who you are. And then the questions also posed at the end of the, the entire book before the epilogue is, was this worth it? And there'll be some people who say, oh, hell yeah. Like, you know, look, look at all <laughs> that he did. And, and then other people say, hell no. So um, I'm putting a lot of weight on the reader to figure out and decide what's what for them. Really, like this is a cautionary tale. We see Darren suddenly chasing this very American version of success right. to, to disastrous consequences, right? I believe that we all um, deserve the right to chase success, but you have to figure out how you define it. Mm. Because if you start chasing the wrong one, right, um, bad things could happen. Can you have this this pursuit of success and yet, you know, still stay true to your art, true to who you are, I should say? I think that that's definitely possible. And people ask that question in different ways sometimes, like did Darren have to lose himself in order to be successful? And what I say is Darren um, had to lose himself in order to become successful in that mm. specific workplace, in that specific environment that is reflective of many environments where you know you walk in as an individual and when you're actually working there, you're an employee. And, and Darren's humanity was stripped, and that's why he had to become Buck. He had to become someone else. But there's nothing to say that Darren couldn't have stayed true to his morals and ethics and that he, didn't, he couldn't go somewhere else that celebrated right. who he was and that he couldn't have been just as, just as successful or if not more in that type of place. So again, this book, it's a cautionary tale. It's showing what can happen when you chase a narrative of success that people are pushing you to chase. Meanwhile, it might not be in line with who you are and your purpose. So right. this is me positing to the reader, what does it mean to be successful? And what are the costs that some people have to pay in order to achieve it? I see that Annie Barton asked why this title. There's levels to this title, but one of the meanings behind it is accruing some sense of financial freedom. And not being beholden to the almighty dollar all the time. And that's just one form 
of attaining some level of freedom doesn't mean work for yourself. Doesn't mean go make a hundred thousand dollars by making someone else rich as well. And you just getting that slice of the pie. We all have to figure it out. I don't have all of these answers. So that's one meaning of the title. Uh, For those who don't know, the historical connotation of black buck was the enslaved male who the white enslavers believed to be unruly, untamable. He was going to burn down the plantation, steal the women, steal the animals, and just, you know, really mess things up. Um, I didn't name the book Black Buck to really provoke, but more so because that's the energy that Darren later on Buck is coming with. He's not burning down these workplaces, but he's burning down what they symbolize even if if only for a moment. He is sort of tasked with being the, the magical Negro who comes in to sort of say, that <laughs> needs to save the day. How hard were some of those scenes like that to write? Because I mean, mm. it's just, even reading it, I had to literally put down the book, do a couple push-ups, run around the block a little bit and then come back to it. <laughs> and knowing that you had to infuse so much emotion into it, were there ever points where you were like, I don't know if I can actually write this, <laughs> you know, mm. this particular scene right now? There weren't parts when I said, I don't know if I could write the scene, but there were scenes that were difficult to write. It wasn't easy for me to subject Darren to what he experienced in the workplace and then have him go and hurt the people who loved him unconditionally. So it was difficult for me to work through some of that, uh, but I had to. It was important for me to have those uh, humorous scenes and, and points of levity to keep it authentic to my experience, right? It's not like we wake up and say, damn, still black sucks, right? <laughs> there's, there's so much levity. There, yes. There's so much triumph. There's just, there's so much humanity and, and success every right. day. Laughter, smiling. Yes. Mike Nichols, he is the director of the, that movie, The Graduate. And he said, um, and somebody had asked him before, they said, is this this a comedy? Is this a drama? And he said, it's real life. And and life is infused with comedy. It's infused with drama. It's infused with with tragedy. It's infused with, you know, humor. It's just, that's just all of life. And I want to try to capture all of life as much as I can in this creation. Um, I like that. I like that. And and that's definitely what it would have felt like with with this book. I mean, it's it's all the, those things and, and and more. Thank you for that. And thank you for giving me that verbiage around it. Because what's tough about a book like this that blurs so many lines is we as people want to place things in boxes. And if they don't mm. fit into boxes very neatly, then we become upset at times. At least that's, that's what I found in my experience. With Black Buck, it's so many things and it's changing from page to page or part to part that once you think it's this one thing, all of a sudden it's going to become something else. And you're like, what the heck is this? It's just real life. Yes. Yes. It it just, even the, even the twists and turns in the book and there are quite a few, it's like, you, you follow along with it and there's there's times where you're like, no, 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 don't turn down that road. But it's, yeah. it's, it's inevitable that he's going to do it. Without spoiling the ending, I'll just say that it's it was good to see that the, the love he gives is is there for him at the end. That pain that he's caused. And grant you, he caused a lot of that pain when he himself was in pain. Pain is kind of what, what gets him to where he's he ends up getting yeah. to towards yeah. the end. The, the ending is, it's complex putting the onus on the reader right. to say what's what. In my opinion, he's in a better place emotionally and spiritually right. than when he was working in that organization. The ending is just, 
there, there are a lot of questions and it, it's on the reader to make heads or tails of how they feel about it. I want people to feel not one thing, but many things, right. because I believe that, you know, if I do my job and they feel a lot, then they will remember that far longer than anything they think about the book and anything that takes place. You have this way of infusing every single character with humanity. Why was that important for you to not, you know, not have these one dimensional stick figures? Um, it was important for me to make them three dimensional because if if Frodo was just someone who was comical all the time, he would be a literary device. He would be comic relief. So I had to figure out who is this guy? And you find out in the book that he got into sales because his dad used to be a used car salesman until he became an alcoholic, right? Right. He wasn't just some football player. Now, different readers perceive different things. There are readers who don't see the humanity even in Clyde, the main antagonist. And I understand it's hard to. And then there's readers who have never met anyone like Wally Cat or Jason, and they say, you wrote a stereotype. If, if ever a character could be perceived as a stereotype, I was going to add things to them to change right. that. Soraya right? Soraya's going over there, hanging out with Darren. She's a powerful woman. She's not just puppy dog, you know, puppy loving eyes all the time. Her dad is from Yemen. He's Muslim, but he's not mm. keeping her in the house all day as people right. would think stereotypically. So yeah, it was for the people who read these books and know that a character like Jason, that a character like Soraya, that a character like Ma, that a character like Mr. Rawlings, even Clyde or Rhett, are people that they actually know in their real lives. Right, right. Yeah. And and I thought you did that so well with even, you know, dialects and, and how Jason, like the his cadence and, and how he talked. I was like, yeah. man, that's, that's a brother I know, Paul over at the barbershop. Exactly. That's literally yeah, him. Exactly. Now in terms of my experiences, emotionally, this book is 100% me. Mm. To write a character like Clyde, I have had to experience the hubris that he has, right? To write a character like Soraya, I have had to love someone and receive love. To write a character like Ma, I I had to know what it was like not to be her. I'll never be a, a single mother, right? But to receive the love of a mother and to put to be able to empathize and put myself in her shoes. There are risks in writing out of your direct experience, but I wanted to take those risks because I believe that I could inhabit those characters in their lives because there were parts of myself in them. There are so many quotes in here and so many beautiful passages but there's there's one in there in particular at one point buck says what i want most for you is to be free mm. where does that desire come from you know tony morrison says that if you have power it's your job to empower other people and in black book specifically i wanted to empower people i wanted to inspire them to know that they are worth chasing their dreams and then I wanted to give people some tools, some of these sales tools to help people be able to advocate for themselves better, advocate on the behalf of other people who they love and, and who they want to help. Intermittently, you have uh, these different axioms that he, that he says, and, and, it's, mm -hmm. and it's sales advice. But in many times, it's really life advice that's interspersed yes. through it. What, what was your sort of source of wisdom for that? So I wanted every piece of advice to double as sales and life advice for sure. 
right? For people who have never been in sales before, have absolutely no interest. I still wanted uh, those asides or axioms to be of value to them. In terms of how I came up with them, it's just, you know, my life, right? Things that I've probably read, sales manuals that I read, uh, getting into sales. Um, Who knows? (laughs) Some, Some of them, I'm sure I made up. Others were things that I'd learned when I came into sales of the world of the world of startups. And then there were there were life lessons that I've learned that I had to reformulate so that they would also apply to sales at the same time. But I was thinking about a few different things, sales manuals that were given to me when I got into sales and how much they resonated with me and how it was just direct, no BS advice. I was thinking about Mohsen Hamed's How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, where at the beginning of every part or chapter, there was uh, a maxim of this is how you get filthy rich in Rising Asia. You stash some money away. You become corrupt. You befriend a bureaucrat. But at the time, specifically, I was reading Mitchell S. Jackson's The Residue Years, and he breaks the fourth wall in a very inconspicuous way. He just says people, comma. And you know that when he's writing people, that he's speaking uh, directly to the reader. So it was after reading Mitchell S. Jackson's The Residue Years and then thinking about those other texts that I said, I've already wanted this to be a sales manual. Let me just punch it up and really break through with the fourth wall. And that's how uh, I decided to write those direct addresses to the reader. I know in the, the book jacket, it, it references, sorry to bother you, Boost Riley directing and, and writing. And if nobody has seen it, I, I, I really would recommend that they do. Who have been, in terms of writers, artists, and, and creatives, some of your other influences um, you know, for this yeah. book? The Sellout by Paul Beatty. You know, I read The Sellout before I began writing Black Buck. And I said, whoa, this book was published? And then I said, whoa, this <laughs> book was published. And he won one of the most prestigious awards ever, the Man Booker at the time. From reading that, I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go big with this book. And the main influence was giving me permission to get a little wild. And I had uh, actually interacted with the writer Jason Reynolds. He's now a friend. But before I knew him, I ran into him at a bookstore in Soho in Manhattan called McNally Jackson. And I got him a cup of coffee and we were talking about books. And I brought up the sellout. And he said, listen, man, be careful. Because if you write something like that, or if you if you push the envelope, you have to be good enough to do so. So that was a little advice that I got from him. And uh, yeah, I leave it to the reader to know if I was good enough or if I stuck the landing. It's it's more so like you're saying the the artists themselves um, rather than the art itself. You know, hmm. someone like Nina Simone is one of my biggest inspirations. Hmm. Miles Davis, Jean Michel yeah. Basquiat, Muhammad yeah. Ali. Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, Nipsey Hussle. What stands out to me and inspires me most about them is that they lived their lives fearlessly. And if they had fear, then they pushed through it. And they spoke up. You have a LeBron James and then a Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan wasn't speaking out about things because he just didn't want to. And that's okay. I'm not saying that he had to. But I respect someone like LeBron more or Colin Kaepernick more because they have made their platform a part of their social justice agenda, right? LeBron's not just going to, as that woman on Fox News said, shut up and dribble. Those are the people that inspire me. And I'm continually being inspired, not just by people whose names we all know, but by people I meet, by people whose work I read or work I I watch. I mean, I'm inspired by you right now, Marcus, for real. So it's like- um, Ah, Same, brother, same. So 
let me let me ask a, a question that that showed up in the chat box. It says, uh, "Love the book." And I'll turn on to your essays and will share with my students. I'd love to hear about educators who did or didn't help you realize the power of your own story and voice. I only had probably three teachers in my, definitely in my high school experience. And I'd have to really think maybe like three to five teachers in my entire schooling experience who empowered me and made me feel special and valuable. And then, you know, when I say that, I'm like, okay, is it a teacher's job to make their students feel special? I mean, I've never been an educator in that way, but I would say if possible, yeah. You know, when, when, whenever anyone believed in me, it made a world of a difference to my performance. I felt like this person actually believed that I could do something. So I had, an AP European and AP world history teacher. He was the same one. This man, uh, Mr. Mr. Bo was, I love that guy. <laughs> he, he really believed in me. He just, he made me feel like the sky was the limit. Um, I had an English teacher and she was just blown away by my writing in that class. And I didn't know if I was a good writer or not at that point, but I wrote something and it's funny cause I wrote something and then I was sick one day and she had read the whole thing out loud in front of the class. And when I got back, people were clowning me for what I wrote because I was writing about <laughs> like snow and how it was sublime. But she said that she wanted wow. to use it as an example because she liked it so much. So she believed in me. I had another history teacher who believed in me. So those were a few people, uh, a few who made me feel special and like I was valuable. And then there were many people, you know, where I went to school is a public school that was more a police state, but we had teachers and students scrapping in the halls, like with each other. Yeah. It it was just like, if you did something wrong, it wasn't, let's figure out why you did that. Let's talk it through. It's ISS in school suspension, right? Or detention. I didn't, I didn't like it. I actually left school a year early just because I was like, yo, I got to get out of here. And in New York state, if you're in advanced classes and then you take extra gym, you can leave school a year early. So that's what I did. This book, I mean, it reminded me of, of the great Gatsby, the, the, the great 20th you know, century novel, you know, that sort of excavates, you know, a certain time period. And I think this, you know, I hope 20 years from now, right, there are kids reading this in the high school. What's What's next for you? I know you have the, uh, I know you have the English tour. We're, we're working to sell this like into Hollywood. There's been a lot Mm. going on behind the scenes. And, you know, for anyone who who follows along on my journey on on social media or anything, you know, when I know, you'll know. This was actually a question that um, my lady had asked. She was wondering, is is Michael B. Jordan, would he be your first choice for, for Buck? slash Darren in a, um, in, in, in a potential movie, uh, of, of Black Buck. <laughs> no, no, he wouldn't be. Michael, okay. he's too old for Buck. I mean, Buck is like 22 for most of it. And, uh, my number one pick would be a young brother named Kelvin Harrison Jr. If you've seen the Godfather of Harlem, the movie waves, yes. he's been in, he's been in so many things. He just came out in, uh, that film monster on Netflix. Mm. He's like my number one pick. Uh, I'm working on another novel, but most of all, I'm working just to stay balanced, healthy, and and present for uh, my loved ones and those in my life. Can you foresee potentially writing a sequel to to Black Book or or, or at least sticking in that that universe? Or is this this one and done in in terms of these characters and and, and this particular um, story? There are people that are constantly asking about a sequel. And what I've told myself is 
if enough people actually wanted a sequel, I, I, I would maybe write one in 10 years, but I have so many other ideas. I have so many right. other things that I want to write and that I want to produce. I mean, in my gut and what I actually want is for it to be one and done. I mean, I, I don't I know if I want to go back to this place. Yeah. And that's actually, which leads me to one of the questions that, that I wanted to, to ask you is how do you sort of take care of yourself as a as a writer and a human being the phrase self-care is, is maybe passe maybe not i mean but just how do you maintain uh so yeah i definitely do have some tools in my tool belt i make sure that i take time for myself i, I get into nature when possible um i talk with family you know daily uh, i surround myself with people who love me unconditionally and mm-hmm. who you know, knew me before I ever wrote uh, a published word. I consume other forms of media that I enjoy, you know, uh, TV and, and so forth. I read. Now, we have 82 people on here. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping the majority have read the book. But for those who haven't, um, you know, what would you say to them in terms of why they should definitely, you know, pick up the book? If, if, if you read the description and it resonates with you, if you listen to this talk and it resonates with you, then read it. If this talk hasn't convinced you to read it, honestly, don't. <laughs> like we only have so much time in this life that we don't have time to read books that we won't enjoy. So I won't take it personally. But Mateo, seriously, brother, thank you so much for the privilege of your time. Thank you for your time, Marcus. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you both so much for being with us tonight. And thanks to everybody who's in the audience. This is the last event of our Author Voices series for spring. We'll be back in the fall. But in the meantime, check out KCLS.org for other online events and fun stuff happening this summer. And thanks again to both of you for being here. Have a great night, everybody. Thanks for hosting. Be well, everybody. Be well, everybody.